freeze. Everybody down on the ground. Well, which is it, young feller? You want I should freeze or get down on the ground? I mean to say, if I freeze, I can't rightly drop. And if I drop, I'm going to be in motion. You see? Shut up! Okay, then. After kidnapping a baby, an ex-con and an ex-cop have to evade the authorities, fugitives, and a biker from hell. Join us as we chat about leaving things on top of your car, Bruce Willis pumping out garbage films, and the yodeling that lives rent-free in Alan's head. Then we decide if raising Arizona stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and your name is Champion. Why, why do you say that? That's what it says on your shirt. Oh, no, no, no. My name is James Briefow. We've done uh, 300-ish episodes of this podcast together, and we've known each other for over 20 years. Yeah, this is number 295. We're getting close to the big three double O. I know your name. But you know whose name I also know besides yours? Who? Philip J. Fry. Leela. Was it Taranga Leela? Is that right? Taranga Leela. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Bender Bending Rodriguez. Yes. And the Jewish lobster, of course, is Zoidberg. Right. Amy. Amy Wong. Kiff. And Zap Brannigan. Zap Brannigan is such an amazing character. He really, really is. And the reason we're naming Futurama characters is because it has been announced that there's going to be a Futurama revival coming to Hulu, uh, I think in 2023. And I was a huge fan of Futurama, like in the initial run, even like in that first season when like People didn't really know about it, and it kind of like gained more traction in the second and third seasons, and then it got canceled after four. But you were a big fan of that show, right? Yeah, it was very hard to follow it. It kept changing where time it was on, but I was always a fan. Then it was on Comedy Central or Adult Swim, one of those for years, and I'd catch some episodes there. Very funny show. I can't watch the dog episode, though. Oh, my God. The dog episode is amazing. It's hard to watch, I understand, but it's also incredible television because it makes you feel a lot for a cartoon with, like, a talking robot, you know, like... It's impressive. It's really impressive. It is. I meant I can't watch it, you know, again, but it's, it's a great episode. Yeah. But, you know, w- with these reboots, when you reboot uh, Saved by the Bell or whether it's Murphy Brown or any of these shows, sometimes you get something like a Cobra Kai that works, uh, you know, okay, now I want to see what these people are like in their middle age. And sometimes you get a Punky Brewster reboot that goes off after like four episodes. Maybe people don't want to see what a spunky little five-year-old is like at you know, 45. Right. Well, I think the important thing to note is that Cobra Kai is a sequel. Punky Brewster, Saved by the Bell, a lot of these shows are reboots. This is a revival, which means that it's not a reimagining. It's not a new twist on the old story. It's the same thing. It's a continuation. 
It's a cartoon. You can do that right. very, very easily. And that makes it, to me, more interesting because I don't need to see, oh, what happened to Fry and Leela 30 years later and this is a story of their kids. No, no, no. This is Fry and Leela. It can take place right after the last episode that aired, I forget, however many years ago because this isn't the first time they brought Futurama back. They brought it back for those made-for-DVD movies, which were then like season five on Comedy Central, and then they did two more seasons, then it was canceled again, now they're bringing it back again. I mean, the last revival had some good episodes and some eh episodes, which to me was a shame only because if you watch those first four seasons, like the original Fox run, I don't think there's a bad episode in there. That was like a really high mark of consistent quality. The revival wasn't as good, but, you know, if this revival still is able to produce some good episodes and some eh episodes, I'd watch that. The thing is, as of right now, all of the cast is returning except for John DiMaggio. And by the time this episode airs, maybe he'll have signed on. It would be a shame if they have to recast Bender. You know, like maybe they can find someone who sounds just like him. But if it sounds a little off, that would be a shame. Yeah, but it could still work. I mean, yeah. something like Futurama has probably only gained popularity since it went off the air. I mean, now it's yeah. on, uh, you can see it on streaming. I think you can see it on streaming. Yeah, it's on Hulu. Yeah, right, right, right. It's on Hulu. You know, they've had like five years now to think of storylines. Maybe they've come up with a, a number and that's why they did the revival. Hopefully that's the case as opposed to someone saying, we need 25 episodes of this for, you know, streaming like in six months. Right. The Simpsons has had like a resurgence in popularity because it's on Disney+. Plus. Maybe they're hoping for the same kind of thing to happen with Futurama. My daughter has seen every single episode of The Simpsons. She binged through all of it on Disney+. Plus During COVID, and I've said to her, hey, if you like The Simpsons, you'd probably like Futurama. And she hasn't gotten into that yet. Maybe this will be the thing that will make her want to watch it. I don't know. I'd watch him again with her. Has she seen that uh, Matt Groening uh, show on Netflix? Uh, Enchanted? Disenchanted? I think it's Disenchanted. No, she hasn't watched that. I haven't watched it either. The visual style appeals to me because I like The Simpsons and I like Futurama, but I haven't watched it. If anyone out there has, and it's good, and we should check it out, let us know. We are at Test of Time Pod. But today, we're going to talk about Raising Arizona. This is a movie that I have wanted to do on the podcast for a very, very long time. It's just a movie that I have fond memories of. I watched it a lot when I was a kid, I guess like late 80s, early 90s. My sister and I watched it all the time, but I definitely haven't seen it in probably 30 some odd years. So I was really excited to watch the movie. Then I saw that uh, it was the 35th anniversary. I was also listening to an episode of Smartless, which is another podcast I like, and they interviewed Barry Sonnenfeld, the director. He was a cinematographer on this movie, and he was talking about working with the Coen brothers, you know, when they were kind of starting out, because this is actually the second Coen brothers movie. Uh, I forget what the name of the first one was, like Blood Simple, I think, something like that. 
Yeah, in case uh, you're like me and you hadn't seen this film before, or it's been 30 years like Al, I'll remind you about the film. Uh, Raising Arizona is a movie about a couple named High and Ed. And High, that's Nicolas Cage, he was a convenience store robber. And Ed, Holly Hunter, she used to be a policewoman. But the pair, they gave up their old lives after they got married. And they soon discover that, unfortunately, they're unable to conceive a baby. So they concoct a plan to kidnap a baby. But the baby they're going to kidnap, it comes from another family set of quintuplets. The baby makes Ed and High happy, but their domestic bliss is short-lived. High loses his job, two of his criminal friends convince him to rob a bank with them, and meanwhile, a ruthless biker is tracking down the baby, hoping to claim the reward money from the baby's family. Will Ed and Hyde do the right thing, or will the stress of their actions tear them apart? Oh, no, I hope not. Well, you'll find out soon. Actually, Ray, it's all the movies, you know. That is true. Yeah, I do know. Uh, but I don't really remember when this movie came out in 87. You know, I was eight years old. Um, but how did it do? The movie came out, I mean, it had just small little openings, but it really hit the mainstream theaters on March 27th, 1987, with $1 million over the weekend. And this film eventually made $22 million. And, you know, it's a very low-budget film. So certainly, you know, $22 million put the Coen brothers on the map. Right. Their first movie, Blood Simple, where Barry Sonnenfeld was also the cinematographer, that didn't really uh, do that much at the box office. I've, I've never seen that one. Uh, but the movie starts with High, and it does have voiceover. He's narrating his life story, but he's basically a career criminal. He robs convenience stores. That's what he does. And while he's being processed and the police officer is taking his mugshot, he starts talking to the police officer. Her name is Ed, short for Edwina, and he's enamored with her. Then he goes to jail. Then he goes to the parole board. He gets out of jail. He robs another convenience store. He goes back to jail. He's just like looking forward to flirting with Ed. She's crying. She says that her fiance left her because she just doesn't know how to pronounce fiance, I guess. You know, he goes back to the parole board. The parole board is talking about recidivism and how they don't want to see High keep coming back in here and keep getting arrested over and over again. At one point, he blames that some bitch Reagan, like that's why he keeps getting arrested. But eventually he gets out and he really decides he's going to turn his life around. He proposes to Ed and they get married. Yeah, it's a very uh, happy marriage uh, until it turns uh, very sad for them because they find out from the doctor that uh, Ed is unable to conceive. And like all of this is set up that's before the opening credits. It's an 11 minute cold open. And then like the title comes on screen of Raising Arizona, you know, just, just setting up that these people are together. We know their past. They can't conceive. They want a baby. And now here comes the story. Like all of that is preamble. I thought that was kind of like, kind of like a bold move. Like you expect like a long cold open before the credits in a James Bond movie. No one had really heard of the Coen brothers when this movie came out. And you're like, you're watching movie, like stuff is happening. And then it's like, after 11 minutes, you get to the title. I thought that was kind of surprising and also kind of cool. I like that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I actually didn't really even notice it. Obviously, I did notice the opening credits, but I found it kind of so engaging. It quickly, 
caught me. And I'm not going to say I'm not a fan of the Coen Brothers films, but I'm not a connoisseur of them. I, I've seen a few of them. As you remember from Big Lebowski, I think I made uh, yours and uh, Dom's uh, jaws drop when I said, I like this film. I think it's a really funny film. I don't love the Coen Brothers films on the pedestal that, say, maybe many other people did. Mm-hmm. But um, this film quickly grabbed me. Because Nicolas Cage, too. I mean, we got to talk about him. Nicolas Cage... There's very few actors that can do such amazing work and such absolute shit. But, you know, Nicolas Cage, (laughs) you know, unlike maybe, say, someone like Bruce Willis, who just does, I think Bruce Willis apparently has, like, 22 direct-to-streaming films coming out. Like, there's all these, like, rumors about, like, how he does, like, a film a week or something. Well, he has his own separate category in this year's Razzies, like, a category of, like, worst Bruce Willis movie, and there's eight Bruce Willis movies that are in that category. Like, I didn't know he put out eight movies in 2021, but he did. And according to the Razzies, they're all terrible. Right. I think it's just a factory because I think you can sell a Bruce Willis film to Netflix or something for like 1.3 million. So just make sure you make this for 1.1 million. You make yourself a cool $200,000. I think they just keep doing these things. Pay Bruce Willis half a million dollars, show up on set. Uh, you know, the lines are fed to him in the earpiece. And he wham, bam, uh, you know, the Steven Seagal model. I guess that's a very cynical thing. <laughs> like, you know, like for people who are out there and trying to make art with their movies and then Bruce Willis is just pumping out garbage. Well, I mean, someone like Nicolas Cage, apparently he had some big, I don't know if it was IRS troubles, but he had some financial troubles apparently, which is why he's done so many like shitty films over the last like 15 years. He just has so many, I guess they used to be called direct-to-DVD, but real bad films. But also when he's on, he's literally Oscar caliber actor. I mean, he's won an Oscar for, I think, Leaving Las Vegas. think so. And I mean, he's just so good when he's good and he's just so... You know, he's like Christopher Walken. He's in a category all his own where you can describe someone as he's just very Nicolas Cage in this film. Yeah, and this is like early on in his career. Uh, He's doing a, I don't think it's an Arizona accent. I I don't really know that I know what an Arizona accent sounds like. Um, He's just doing some kind of voice. Holly Hunter is from Georgia, and she, in this movie, has her trademark southern accent. I guess maybe she was from the south and moved to Arizona. They never really say, but yeah, whatever. Who cares? Um, But after the credits come on, 11 minutes into the movie, we get to the crux of the plot, which is that High and Ed are going to kidnap one of the Arizona quintuplets. And the movie takes place in Arizona, but they are also known as the Arizona quintuplets because they are the children of Nathan Arizona, who is this guy who owns a chain of furniture stores. They say later on that that's not his real name. He just changed his name to Nathan Arizona to sell furniture in Arizona, which was probably a good marketing move. Brilliant. Yeah. Nathan Arizona and his wife are older. They went through fertility treatments. They had five kids. And Ed and High figure, well, they have five. They don't need five kids. We don't have any, and we desperately want one. We can take one. And the kidnapping scene is funny. I mean, and like that as a sentence is weird. Like it's a funny kidnapping scene, but it is just kind of so out there where the five babies are sleeping in one big crib that has like all of the names on the crib so they can like keep the baby straight. 
which is stupid because babies don't keep still when they sleep. Also, neither do adults. Like most people like move around, but like you can't expect that baby one, two, three, four, and five are going to stay in that same position all night. Also, Nathan, Arizona owns furniture stores. He should be able to get five separate cribs and put the five names on those five cribs. And that would be an easier solution, right? Like, why doesn't he just do that? I did not think about the furniture distribution parts of this. Well, he's a furniture salesman. You do do bring up a good point. Uh, This also brings sort of the conflict of this film that they kidnap a baby, they kidnap Nathan Jr. Or so they think. They're not sure. Right. They're not sure. They think it's Nathan Jr. I keep wondering as I'm watching this film, like, how dare they say they only deserve five people? You know, they stole a baby and also... This is horribly traumatic for Nathan Jr., whoever this baby is. The other four, they're probably going to hear, you know, at least they're going to hear the cries of a few more babies. They're fine. This kid, I I think, probably is aware that there's four other babies that always cry around. Now it's silence. And I think it's it's very traumatic for this kid. But also, they're kidnappers. They stole someone's baby. Mm -hmm. But maybe the music, maybe something in this film. Maybe it's because of Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. I don't instantly hate these people right which is an accomplishment kind of that like the coen brothers are able to show you these kidnappers who yes are doing a horrible horrible thing and you're kind of a little bit rooting for them or you're not actively rooting against them either i'll tell you what i was doing as someone who's never seen this film i was very like I'm going to see where this goes. Like, I, I was very reserving judgment because I did kind of like them. And you felt very bad for them. And I understand how desperate they'd be. But it was still, I, I want to see where this goes. I think that's fair. And you can also feel sympathy for Ed when, as they're driving away, like minutes after they've done this kidnapping and she's holding the baby and she just bursts out sobbing like I love him so much and you know like it's kind of funny because she's just met this baby and she just kidnapped this baby but she's that desperate for that kind of relationship with a baby that she just has all of these emotions that just pour right out of her I mean I've been to a lot of births and a lot of first time moms and dads and you see this cliche of like I can't believe I've fallen in love with someone I've just met and you know there's this cliche but you're right you just kidnapped this kid <laughs> you know she really makes it as if she was just handed a baby by the nurse right exactly exactly but like then they go home and they have this sweet homecoming except it's quickly interrupted by these two other guys that high knows from prison have broken out, they've escaped, and they are coming to stay with their old buddy, High. One of the fugitives is played by John Goodman, who is a regular for the Coen brothers. We saw him in the two other movies that we did on the podcast by the Coen brothers, The Big Lebowski and Old Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, had John Goodman. He shows up in a lot of their stuff. Right, and uh, Frances McDormand, she's uh, she's in this film as well. I was yep. looking through the cast specifically I want to see, oh, are we going to see, uh, you know, Steve Buscemi in here or something? But uh, yeah, it was definitely a bunch of staples. Well, Holly Hunter is also in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? She's George Clooney's character's ex-wife. So not a huge role, but but she's in that. And apparently Nicolas Cage is not in the Coen Brothers repertoire because he, in this movie, had a lot of ideas and wanted to improv and riff on things. And that's not the Coen Brothers style. And in that episode of Smartless I was talking about with Barry Sonnenfeld, he was talking about that, that like 
the Coen brothers have a vision, do what they want. Like that is their thing. You know, some directors are more loose and you can improvise and stuff like that. The Coen brothers are not those directors. And, you know, that works for some people and not so much for others. Um, but like, I love when John Goodman's character is like explaining why they broke out of prison to Ed, who is like not at all happy that there are wanted fugitives in her house with her newly kidnapped baby. And John Goodman's character says, well, we released ourselves on our own recognizance. Like, um, that's not how prison works. You can't just decide, well, we don't want to be in prison anymore. So we dug ourselves a tunnel. It's a, just a funny delivery by John Goodman. I mean, there's very little John Goodman does that he's not amazing at. Yes, people do praise how good he is, but he is not seen on a level of a, of a De Niro or a Tom Hanks. I, I think he is. I, I think he is dramatically brilliant, comedically brilliant. I, John Goodman is so, he's so fantastic. Even in a movie like Coyote Ugly, he's just like, what a great sweet dad. John Goodman can do no wrong in my eyes. Are you watching uh, The Righteous Gemstones on HBO Max? I did see the first season. Uh, I've not caught up. I know the second season is uh, is out. Yeah, it's great. He has more to do in season two. I definitely have listened to, uh, what's the song called? Ain't Misbehaving. I've listened to that on Alexa. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's and good you have to specially select which version you want. You want oh, the yeah. kid's version or the adult version. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. We listened to that a lot uh, when we watched the first season of that. Yeah. Then there is a character that I just absolutely love. Now, High sort of has a dream about this character, and I thought this character might have been some kind of weird fantasy of his, or I didn't know where this film is going, but it turns out this is a real character that, uh, I don't know, because I have a vision of it, or maybe as a dream or a premonition, but there's this biker guy going through the Southwest, and he is badass. And you know how you know he's badass? Because he's got the Harley and he's got the sunglasses and he's got this like badass mullet. And then we're, we're sort of not hating um, kidnappers. I'm also going to wind up kind of laughing at animal cruelty because as this guy is driving through the American Southwest, he just like takes out a couple grenades he has hanging off his vest and casually throws them to the side to like a bunny and it blows up and like they're not in his way. He's just killing them. It's just, I don't know why I thought that was hysterical. I mean, it's extreme and you're laughing at the extremeness of it which is fine. Yeah, like, there's no reason for him to kill these, like, defenseless little creatures that are just hopping by as he's riding along the highway on his motorcycle, but he does because he's evil. And you're right, it's it's not totally clear, like, why High has this vision of this guy. In the voiceover, he says that, like, he thinks that he summoned this guy from the depths of hell because he committed kidnapping but then also it's a guy who exists and has his own backstory and everything. So the logic of his dream sequence isn't really explained and it's just out there and it's a little weird and whatever, you go with it. But there's a really funny scene when the cops are talking to Nathan Sr. about the baby who has been kidnapped and they're asking him like what the babies were wearing and the babies were just wearing diapers during the kidnapping scene. But Nathan Sr., he doesn't know. He's like, oh, they were wearing jammies. Well, what was on the jammies? I don't know, Yodas and shit. <laughs> that made me laugh. And as a test of time thing, like, yeah, I'm sure kids did wear jammies with Yodas and shit in 1987. Now maybe they're more baby Yodas. Oh, it's all baby. So many kids coming in baby Yoda onesies. It's really cute. 
Oh, a cute baby wearing a cute baby Yoda onesie. Although his name is Grogu. But I digress. Then Ed, who now has a baby, wants to invite other couples and families over because that's who they are now. So she invites her friends Glenn and Dot. Dot is played by Francis McDormand. Do you know who Glenn is? Did he look familiar to you at all? He did very much so. I, I couldn't put a finger on it. What's he from? You might know him better as Dr. Schweiber from Freaks and Geeks, Neil Schweiber's philandering dentist father. Right, right, right. Yes, yes, the dentist. Yes, exactly. I love him so much in this movie. He is just so damn funny. Everything he says is hilarious. You know, they have a bunch of kids and the kids are like destroying High and Ed's house. They're like drawing on the walls and breaking shit left and right. And Glenn is saying that they were going to adopt because High and Ed's cover story is that they adopted the baby. Uh, He's like, yeah, we were going to adopt on account of something's wrong with my semen. But anyway, we go to the adoption agency and uh, they said it was going to be five years to adopt a healthy white baby. And, you know, that's a long time to wait, which we would have to do on account of my semen. And like just everything the guy says was just making me laugh out loud. He keeps saying like, uh, say, that reminds me. And then he'll say something that is not at all related to anything else they were talking about. I loved every second of the scene, mainly because of him. Oh, yeah. And they uh, they took a lot about vaccines. And she's talking about, you got to get your dip tet. Now they call it like D-tap. I was like, dip tet. Maybe that's before they add the pertussis and it was just diphtheria and tetanus. But she also talks about how you got to get your smallpox vaccine. And that's definitely a test of time because smallpox is eradicated from the planet Earth. Well, except for two vials. Apparently, there's only two vials left. One in Atlanta and one in Moscow. No one's been given the smallpox vaccine in years. Interesting. You didn't have the smallpox vaccine. Don't tell me what I had. I I absolutely can tell you what you had. (laughs) You did not have the smallpox vaccine. Um, Listen, I had a life before I met you. And that life did not involve smallpox (laughs) vaccines. Um, I love that now we're getting into the minutia of which vaccines stand the test of time. Oh, yeah. The interactions with Ed and Dot are very funny. And then... Glenn basically pitches to High, hey, you know what we should do? We should swap wives. And High does not like this idea at all. He punches Glenn, and then we find out that Glenn is actually High's boss. And, you know, you can't punch your boss, so then he loses his job. And very quickly, their nice domestic situation with the baby and the friends and the job, it's all coming unglued, and... They go out to buy Huggies, and High decides he's going to rob a convenience store. Instead of just buying the Huggies at the convenience store, he's going to rob it. And this is something that stood out in my memory of having seen this movie so many times when I was a kid. While High is robbing the convenience store, Ed is in the car with the baby, and she sees him through the window, and she says, That son of a bitch! That son of a bitch! And then she runs out of the car and screams, you son of a bitch. And that is something that my sister Samantha and I said many times when we were kids because we were quoting the movie and because it's funny to say bitch over and over again. It, it works in really any situation. That son of a bitch. That son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. And I was really excited when I saw that moment. That just makes me smile. 
I'm glad that makes you smile. I, I did like the chase scene. It's sort of a, like end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, vibe to it, where they're running through the neighborhoods and the cops are chasing them. The thing that makes it different from Ferris Bueller is all of the gunfire. High is running through a residential area. There are houses, there are people watching TV, there are people sleeping in their beds, and these cops are openly firing at him a lot. I mean, he robbed the convenience store. That's bad. That's against the law. But you would hope that cops wouldn't be shooting that much in this crowded area. Then the chase goes into a supermarket where there's lots of people. You see like lots of like ladies with curlers in their hair buying produce and the cops are still shooting like all over the place at high. It's laughable like how much gunfire there is in this silly chase of a convenience store robber. And this was also something I remembered from this movie the music that is playing in this scene. Here, let's play a clip of this song. I would not consider myself a yodeling fan in general, but... This is a great song with yodeling. And I will say that even though I haven't seen this movie in 30 some odd years, this song lives in my head rent free. This song pops into my head just sometimes, just for no particular reason. I'll just hear that. That was probably terrible. I should not do yodeling impressions or yodeling at all, but I love this song. And it just makes the whole scene feel that much more outrageous and weird and surreal and brilliant. I didn't really think of the song, but that scene was such a Joel and Ethan Cohen scene to me. I was like, okay, this is where they get their style. I get to see it like in one of the first films they've done. And it's just very, I don't know, zany, madcap or whatever word you want to say. It's almost cartoony a little bit. I like how he's been carrying this bag of Huggies uh, since the convenience store, but he loses it at one point. Like the cops are chasing him and they're shooting him. And uh, when they run through the uh, supermarket, he steals another bag of Huggies. And he's running with that. He loses the Huggies again. But uh, eventually, Ed picks him up. She saves the day. Right, because she drove off when he was first robbing the convenience store because she was so mad at him. And then the cops are coming and he has nowhere to go, which is why he was running down the street in the first place. But then she thinks better of it and she comes around. Also, while she's like making these insane hairpin turns, the baby is like kind of pulling his hood down over his eyes and kind of like a, oh, no, I can't look kind of a way, which is maybe a dumb gag, but... I don't know. It just kind of works for me. And like babies will do that, not necessarily because they're in a high stakes chase, but just because like if the light's bothering them, my daughter did that one. She pulled her little hat over her eyes and it's adorable. Um, But they go home. Ed is clearly pissed at high. The fugitives are still there. John Goodman and his buddy are still there. And they're saying, you know what? Things clearly aren't going well with your marriage. How about you come with us and rob a bank? And High's like, I don't rob banks. I rob convenience stores. And John Goodman's like, yeah, yeah. But this is a perfect score. He calls it a hayseed bank, meaning that farmers go there and they deposit all of their subsidy checks. And it's a really easy target. And hey, we're going to go and rob this bank. You should come with us. And High decides to do it. 
He writes a letter saying uh, goodbye to Ed, and he's going back to his life of crime. And meanwhile, this biker guy that we earlier saw, you know, riding through the desert and killing animals, he meets up with Nathan Arizona. We find out that this guy is uh, Lenny Smalls, and he's sort of like a bounty hunter. Yeah. And there's been a $25,000 reward for the baby, and he basically says, I'll do it, but for 50 grand. Then Nathan Arizona is like, hell no, and he's like, get out of here. The uh, bounty hunter has a great line where he's basically like, well, I'm still going to find the baby and get the baby, implying, like, you're not getting the baby back unless I get my reward, which will probably now be $100,000. Right. Well, he's saying that the baby will fetch a high price on the black market, so you pay me more than the reward or I'll just sell the baby. And he says, like, that's what happened to him, you know, when he was a baby. So he's basically offering Nathan Arizona one opportunity, Nathan Arizona's like, no, you probably took the baby yourself. I'm not paying you. And then he's gone. He's going to get the baby. He's going to get his money either way. He doesn't care because he's a scary biker from hell. Right. And uh, then uh, Glenn, his uh, former boss, uh, he comes and he's extorting him now. And he's like, I know that baby, blah, blah. You better give me the baby. A weird analogy. I was kind of getting there's something about Mary vibes where it's just like everyone in that movie is in love with Mary. Everyone in this movie wants to adopt this baby. Glenn and his wife decided they're going to adopt the baby. Then when Glenn is confronting High about the baby, this all happens like outside of their trailer. But then High goes back into the trailer and John Goodman and the other fugitive, they heard. So now they're going to take the baby and they're going to get the reward money. Although once they have the baby... They kind of fall in love with the baby, and then they're going to adopt the baby. Like, everybody falls in love with this baby. Everyone wants to keep and adopt this baby. And, you know, it's a cute baby. Did you notice that every time someone kidnaps the baby, whether it's High or Evel, do you notice what they what they also steal? Yes, they take the quote-unquote instruction manual, which is a book by Dr. Spock. Right, right. It's basically like uh, in the 50s 50s or so, uh, this guy wrote a manual, and it was the first and at the time really the only book of this kind on the market. So it became the way an entire generation, basically our parents' generation, were raised basically by one pediatrician's point of view. Interesting. I feel like my mom had that book. I feel like I remember seeing it like on a bookshelf somewhere. Oh, I mean, it was a Bible. It's it's basically like today when a woman's pregnant, you get this what to expect when you're expecting book. It was the book to get when you graduate high school, you get all oh, the places you'll go. And when you're pregnant, you get that book. When you had a baby, you got Dr. Spock. When I graduated elementary school, I got oh, the things you can think. What's that? Is that Dr. Seuss? Yeah. Oh, the thinks you could think? Oh, yeah. That's a classic. Or maybe it's not. I just like it because I got it. Or maybe it's when I graduated kindergarten. Maybe that was it. I don't know. But, yeah, the the Dr. Spock book is a recurring gag. Uh, And while the fugitives have the baby, they stop for gas, and they put the baby carrier on top of the car, and then they forget it, and they drive off, and then they realize that, oh, no, the baby is still on top of the car. And what does John Goodman's character do? The stupidest thing he could do if he thinks the baby is on top of the car, he slams on the brakes, which, like, you understand, like, that's like a moment of panic kind of a thing. But, like, no, no, what you should really do is then very slowly 
slow down and come to a stop, but he doesn't. He slams on the brakes. The baby's not on top of the car, thankfully, at that moment, so he doesn't go flying. Then he does a quick turn and then speeds down the road, which is also, again, not the smart thing to do. You should be driving down the road very slowly. You know, he slams on the brakes right in time before he would run over the baby carrier, which is on the ground. Just luck, I guess, that the baby carrier fell off the car and just landed right side up. Like, every now and again, I feel like you might see that. Like, people, like, taking the baby carrier and putting it on top of their car, you know, like, while they're unloading groceries or something. That always just freaks me out, probably because of this movie. Have you ever done that? Like, a coffee cup or something, like, driven off and then, like, the coffee cup falls down? Maybe I have, yeah. My mom and stepdad will get really pissed at me for telling this story publicly. Uh, When Courtney and I got married, we gave them the job of, like, bringing the ketubah to the ceremony. They put it on top of their car and then drove off, and it was still on top of their car. A bus driver was honking at them and, like, telling them that they had something on top of their car. We didn't find out about that for years they kept that a secret. And then one day my aunt was like, did they ever tell you that uh, they left the ketubah on top of their car when they were going to your wedding? I was like, you did what? Um, but it didn't fall off and break. So I guess it worked out. But don't put anything important on top of your car. That's the moral of the story. Especially babies. Especially babies. Babies are more precious than a ketubah. For any listeners who don't know what a ketubah is, just Google it. Uh But there's a really, really funny scene where John Goodman and his partner, brother, they go to rob the the bank. They go in and they're like, all right, everybody freeze. Now everybody get down. And like the people in the bank don't know what to do because they're like, well, you said freeze, but then you said get down. And we can't get down if we're freezing because as you can clearly understand, those two things are contradictory. They're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Everybody get down. Forget about the freezing. And then they go over to the tellers and there's no tellers there. It's like, where are the tellers? And they're like, well, we're on the ground. You said everyone had to get down. And like, it's dumb, but also makes perfect sense. And it's just really, really funny. I love the entire scene. Oh, yeah. And then they they rob the bank and then they, uh, they wind up leaving the baby again. Uh-huh. Everything's really coming to a head here. You have uh, High and Ed, they've shown up. Uh, Lenny Smalls, the bounty hunter, he's shown up. And he gets the baby. He gets the baby, right? Um, he snatches it up, and High winds up having a fist fight with uh, the bounty hunter, but he's no match for him. This guy's a huge hulking character. It's one of those things where he's uh, punching him, and the guy's basically laughing at him, like, you do nothing to me, weak man. Basically, all High is doing is just killing time so that Ed can run away with the baby. Like, he knows he's not going to beat this guy in a fight. He's just, like, doing his best and getting the shit kicked out of him. But, as we remember from that first scene, when Smalls is, like, throwing grenades that he has on his vest at the little fluffy bunnies that's hopping by, he has lots of grenades on his vest. And during the fight with High, High is able to grab a pin out of one of the grenades and... He notices it. He looks down and Smalls kind of notices and goes to take the grenade off of his vest, but it's too late and he just blows up. After High mouths to him, I'm sorry. I think he says it. Like, like he is. He's yeah. sorry. He feels bad. Like, he wasn't trying to kill the guy. He was just, like, grasping at the guy while the guy was beating the shit out of him and he, like, kind of happened to pull out the pin. It doesn't seem like he did it deliberately, you know? But that's 
a good thing ultimately because now they have the baby and they decide to return the baby. They finally decide to do the right thing. Nathan, Arizona catches them. And at first they're kind of like, oh, well, we found the baby. So we get the reward money, right? But Nathan, Arizona is like, you're sneaking into my house and putting the baby back. You took the baby. And they kind of have like this weird heart to heart between the kidnapper and the guy whose son was kidnapped. And he's like, look, I understand you were desperate. You wanted a baby. I won't press charges. I'm not giving you any reward. But Ed and Hi say that they're going to break up. And he says, eh, just sleep on it. And it's like, maybe he shouldn't be that nice, but he's happy he gets his son back. And Hi does sleep on it. And he has another one of his prophecy dreams where he sees the future of himself and all of the characters, basically. He basically dreams like uh, he winds up following Nathan Jr. around his whole life. And he's like, we're secretly like the guys that are going to root for you at the football games that you go to. And it's kind of sweet. Yeah, like they, they send him a football anonymously. And then Glenn gets pulled over by a cop. He was making Polish jokes earlier, and then he makes a Polish joke to this cop who's Officer Kowalski, and he gets arrested, and the fugitives go back to jail because they just realize that they're not ready to live on the outside, and Ed and High grow old, and they have kids of their own, and they have grandkids, and they have a happy life together, and he's saying in voiceover, like, is it real? Is it just a dream? I don't know, but it sure seems nice. The yodeling kicks back in, and that's the end of the movie. So I'm, I'm really, really curious to, to know what you think about it, James. Do you think the movie stands the test of time? You know what word I'd call this? This was a screwball comedy. It's not quite as screwball-y as they get with uh, Burn After Reading, the, the Brad Pitt, George Clooney spy film. Okay. But... Um, this film, it's it's weird. You got these protagonists that are kidnappers. You feel bad for them, but it's also a comedy. But just like uh, Big Lebowski, I just don't get the unbelievable appeal of it. I mean, here's the thing. I like this film. It was nice. I don't get how this is somebody's favorite film. I don't get it. When you're like, oh, we saw this film so many times as a kid. Is it one of those things like, yeah, I saw Caddyshack 2 a lot as a kid because it was on. I mean, was this one of these films that was just on a lot? Or were you like crazy about this film as, as a young kid? I'm going to guess that we had it on VHS. Maybe we just like recorded it from basic cable one day and then that was why we watched it over and over because we just had the tape. That seems likely. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is the uh, third uh, Coen Brothers film that we reviewed. Mm -hmm. They're very similar vibes. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, Big Lebowski, and this film, Raising Arizona. They're just weird. The plots of the films are weird. The characters are all, like, I don't know anyone that resembles any character in any Joel Nathan Coen film, which is probably a good thing, considering <laughs> most of these people are, you know, a lot of criminals in, in most of those films. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of 
film that could be awful. I mean, just, it's a weird concept. Uh, an inferior set of uh, filmmakers would make a bad film. These guys are just so good, and I guess that's a credit to them, that there's weird films that I just keep liking. I don't think I want to watch this film again, uh, unless I had to, because, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not, to me, a, a crowd-pleasing film, but I like that I would see it again, but that's not the, the question you asked me. You asked, does this stand up? And yeah, this does stand up. This film was fun. It was entertaining and uh, weird. Just uh, weird. So uh, what, what do you think, Al? Does this film stand up? And also, whether it does or does not, where is it ranked to you in the Coen Brothers library? Well, I feel like a lot of the later Coen Brothers movies, I was kind of more meh on. And I'd be curious to watch some of those movies again. And there's definitely a lot that I've missed. I'm not like a Coen Brothers completist or anything. I think Big Lebowski is probably just going to be my favorite. But I got to say, I really liked watching this movie. I think for 98 minutes or however long this movie is, I had a big, goofy smile on my face. I just love it. I think it is really well done. It's interesting. It's hilarious. And I think what you were kind of alluding to was this sort of Coen Brothers style. And the thing that I really like about the Coen Brothers style is just the language that they use. They just use words that people don't say in day-to-day -day life. You know, like when the parole board is talking about recidivism and John Goodman's talking about his own recognizance, the first time Ed hands the baby to High, she's like, now mind the fontanelle. When Nathan Arizona is talking to the cops, they're not being very clean at the crime scene. And he's like, isn't searching for microbes your whole raison d'etre? After John Goodman and his brother leave the bank, he's telling them all to lie on the floor. He's like, if we come back in five minutes and catch any of you bipedal, we're going to shoot your ass or something like that. Like, why would he say bipedal? It makes sense. But like, it's just not a thing that a person would say. And they're just woven into this movie seamlessly. I love it. I love the way that the Coen brothers use words. I love the music. I love everything about this movie. And it did kind of make me think about a movie that we talked about recently, What About Bob, which is a very, very different movie, but that's also a dark comedy, a movie where these things that are happening are not okay and the quote-unquote heroes don't really always act heroic and it's supposed to be funny to me, this movie does that kind of humor a million times better. It's a comedy about kidnapping that works. It's funny. There is a kind of a moral. You know, they return the baby at the end. They do the right thing. They learn a lesson. And it's a messed up thing. But, like, everything about it just works on every level. To me, it's a very easy movie to love. And I think 100% it stands the test of time. I had a blast watching it. I really did. When I say it's weird, I do not mean that in a, in a negative way. You know the closest thing to a Joel and Ethan Cohen film that gives it just sort of that feel? And I can't believe we have not done one of this director's films yet, but... Wes Anderson. A Wes Anderson film has a Wes Anderson feel to it yeah. and a vibe. And this just has that Coen Brothers vibe to it. You either like it or you don't. No, it seems that you either love it or you don't. I like it. 
And uh, yes, I seem to keep liking their films. Well, there you go. We'll definitely do uh, Fargo, which has a lot more Francis McDormand than you get in this movie. Uh, But I really, really enjoyed this movie a lot. I'm really glad we watched it. I'm glad we talked about it. And I'm glad that you didn't hate it. I was a little worried that you might. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that's very, very different. We're going to be talking about 1992's The Lawnmower Man. Have you ever seen that one? I have not. I did read the short story on which it was based, though. Based very, very, very loosely. I don't even know that you could use the word based. Uh, The title was completely based on the short story by Stephen King. Or not based on, but stolen from? Well, tricked into getting the rights and then completely changing the movie that they bought the rights to. Yeah. We'll talk about that next week. Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking about that movie. Until then, as always, we want you to talk to us on social media. We are at Test of Time Pod. If you don't follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you should. You should also make sure you're subscribed on whatever app you're listening to us on. If it's Spotify, if it's Apple Podcasts, give us five stars if you think we deserve it. We appreciate it. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.